So hopefully you all remember the story you heard years and years ago. Um, how we've split it between us is I'll talk about the story from the point of view of Naomi, who was the mother-in-law, and lovely Liz, who's encouraged you all to be part of kids' work. We'll talk about Ruth next week. And I think the theme for me, that I, as I'll be reading through the four chapters, is not a long book, so if you haven't read it recently, go home, have make a cup of tea or coffee, and read over the story, because it's a lovely, lovely story. But the theme that comes through for me, that's my daughter, <laughs> um, is hope that even though circumstances and the situation you're in looks hopeless, God can still turn it around and bring hope. And it's a very personal story, it's a very human story. If you think of most of, most of the Bible, is the beginning is Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it's just dull, it's boring. You didn't hear me say that. <laughs> and then you go on, it's big battles, it's all about the nations, kingdoms, wars. And then you go on to New Testament, and it's all about encouraging us to live a Christian life. But if you think there aren't actually that many stories in the Bible that actually just tells a story of a family. And that's what Ruth does. It tells the story of family on a very personal level. What they went through and what they experienced. So it's not a story of a great miracle or big healing. It's not a story of great deliverance from the oppression. But it's a story of one woman and her family. And the whole theme is you're moving from emptiness to fullness. So you have Naomi, who lost everything, but then she gained everything again. And I think I will start with just reading the first five verses from Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. There were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. It's not a very good start, is it? <laughs> I was saying to David last night after we get home after the service, I always seem to talk about very somber topics. But then he did make a comment that I'm thin and Finnish people. If you think of any kind of Scandinavian nudic drama, they're never very cheerful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it probably goes with my nationality that I tend to veer towards the somber and serious. But hopefully it's slightly more cheerful than some of the crime dramas that you've seen. 
So, there was a famine, but they were in the promised land. How can you have a famine in the promised land? Come on, come on, come on. That was the place God had given them, but there was hardship there. And actually, promised land, it can become a very uncomfortable place through the choices we make. We can see time and time again in the Old Testament, God said, if you follow me, I will bless you. And time and time again, the Israelites did the completely opposite. And as a consequence, there was famine. They got taken into exile. So through the choices they made, the place that was supposed to be their promised land became a place of hardship. So here we have the family. They're supposed to be living in the land that is flowing with milk and honey, and they haven't got food. And interestingly, they actually left, left Judah. They left Bethlehem because they wanted more comfort. And later on in the chapter, it says, Naomi left full but returned empty, implying they didn't actually have to leave. They hadn't exhausted all the options. They probably had a piece of land they could have sold. But rather than doing that, they chose to go to a different place where they thought life would be easier. And how many times we do that? We're in a hard place. And rather than pursuing and the, all the options we have, we take the easy way out. That often ends up being a detour and makes the journey longer in the long run. But Naomi also, not only did her husband follow the comforts and take the whole family with him, because at that time it was very kind of male-led society, so it would have been Elimelech's choice and the family followed. So you could say Naomi probably didn't choose to go to Moab, but she ended up there through circumstances. So we have Naomi who followed others to somewhere where she didn't want to be. And we can actually do the same at times. Because when you're going through a tough time, people want to bless you and they want to encourage you. But actually sometimes they can just give you nice words that don't, not that they don't mean anything, but they aren't from God. So you know in your heart the words that God has given you, those are the ones to hold on to. It's not to say that people can't give you correct words, people can't give you words from God, but in the end of the day, it's between you and God, and you need to stay true to what God has spoken to you, what he has promised to you. And hopefully you'll have good supporting network around you who will speak life into you and who will actually hear what God has for you. But we do have a tendency, kind of pat on the back and just say nice comforting words, rather than being daring to speak the truth at times. So however she ended up there, it was Naomi's responsibility, one way or the other. She was in this tough place, and it, it was not good. Her husband was dead, her sons were dead, there was no hope for her. And that's the funny thing, we are all free to make choices. But the thing we are free from is the consequences. So you, 
but as human beings, we rather have somebody else take control and tell us, do this, do that. Um, we've got nine-year-olds, and he had a birthday a couple of weeks ago, and as a consequence, his screen time allowance was increased. And before, the time was split between weekend and midweek, so he had a certain amount of time between Monday and Friday, and a certain amount of use at the weekends. Whereas now, we increased the time slightly, but now he gets to use whenever he wants with the limit of maximum two hours a day. He only gets four hours. And more often than not, it's gone by Sunday morning, because the time <laughs> starts on Saturday. But he's been muttering, why can't we go back to the old system? It was so much better. Because we, the ex external body was telling him, actually, you have to use some on weekends and some during the week. So it meant he had some time left. And there's no point trying to tell him, kind of, it's all about self-control. In his mind, it would be much better if we told him, you can do this, this, and this. And it's a silly little example, but most of us, we would rather have somebody tell, you do this, because then if things turn belly up, yeah. it's not your fault. It's the person who told you to do that. And for Naomi, it's a very... It's not a very nice place to be, is it? You're in a foreign land. Your husband's dead. Your sons are dead. And it's not only if you... I'm not really a crazy historian. can't even pronounce the word, can I? But it, in that time, it was not only a very personal experience, very emotional experience, because you lost a loved one, but it also had an impact on your social status, because the land went with the husband. Everything was tied to the husband or the sons. So as a widow, usually it meant you got, went down in the pecking order. You probably ended up in poverty. And very often in the Bible, widows are clubbed together with orphans and landless aliens, in one of the translation calls them, but people who had nothing. So that was where widows were put together with. But then the wonderful thing is God, that's God's heart is to look after the widows and the orphans. So later on in the story, I think Liz will probably talk the, more about that. But one of the things God told the Israelites is when you do your harvest, don't be too meticulous. Leave bits on the field, leave grape in the vines, yeah. leave fruit in a tree. So those who haven't got any, can go and collect that, and they can benefit from your blessing. From what you have, from your overflow, they will be fed. And it's actually in James. See if I couldn't find James last night. I'll see if I can find it tonight, this morning rather. In James 1, 26 and 26. I'll just read it from there. Those who consider themselves religious and yet not keep a tight rein on their tongues uh -uh, deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. 
And then I think it goes, uh, goes on about talking about giving the crown a life. But that's the worship that is acceptable God, to God. That's his heart, that we look after those who can't look after themselves, that we defend those who can't defend themselves. And this Naomi would have known that. She would have known that in her country, that's the case. So in Moab, she had nothing left. But if she went back to Israel, at least, it probably wouldn't be an amazing living, but she would be looked after to a degree. But it's very interesting thinking, why, why didn't she go earlier? Because they, if you read the beginning, it sounds like her husband died, and then there was a kind of lapse of time before her sons died, because the son sons ended up getting married <coughs> after, after the husband died. And they were actually there 10 years. So what was meant to be for a while became almost a permanent solution. We've been up here 10 years and two weeks. And in that time, you do put down roots. And you actually start to have history with people, and you know, you know each other. So for Naomi, it wouldn't have been an easy decision to make that I'm going back. I, was, I, I, was, I had the hypothetical scenario if David died. Not that I'm planning him to die, but what would I do? Would I go back to Finland, or would I stay here? And probably like Naomi, I would probably choose to stay here because my children's lives are here. And that was probably for Naomi, that was probably part of the reason why she chose to stay, because her sons had a life there. And then sons got married. So then there was a glimmer of hope for her, because they might have children who would look after her as she got older. But then unfortunately, the sons died as well. And part of the reason why they probably didn't go as well, not only some, the sons had life there, but they were called Marlon, which means sickly, and Killian, which means failing. So <laughs> they probably weren't in the best of health if you go by the names. <laughs> but see, often Lizzie hadn't heard about talking life into her kids. <laughs> but I was wondering, what was the catalyst for Naomi? Because she could have, at the point when her husband died, she could have gone back, but she chose not to. And when her sons married, she probably could have gone with the sons and the wives then at that point. But the turning point was that Naomi had heard that God had come to the aid of Israel. Whoa. That was the little glimmer of hope that she saw. And it's not like the modern era where we just turn on our phones and you can instantly know what's happened on the other side of the planet. It would have been trickling down, traveler coming down saying, Naomi, I heard in your country there's food again. And the first person, she probably just dismissed it. And then a few months later, the other person came and said, there's food in Israel, God's come to Israel's aid. And it might have been quite a few reports that she heard before she actually had the courage to believe them and go. So for her, the catalyst for change was that she'd heard God was on the move. Like in Narnia, yeah. Aslan was on the move. And that caused things to change. So here's Naomi. She's lost everything. She's got two young daughter-in-laws because they married relatively young at that point. And even 
he's kind of he's one of those stories you can do lots of hypothetical scenarios because they stayed there for 10 years so it could be Elimelech died the first year they were there and the sons got married five years later but however they were probably in the early 20s the daughter-in-laws and she so was probably late 40s so not that old technically in modern terms well not in my eyes anyway I think it's kind of young still I hoped Amen. <laughs> but here she is. She's leaving a place that she had arrived full. They'd arrived there with possessions. And it's all been exhausted. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. And she's going back based on the reports that God is on the move. But she doesn't know what she's going back to. And to me, the interesting thing was, I was, I was kind of asking God, why did she say to her daughter-in-laws to go away? Because if I was in that position, I had nothing. At least I'd want to keep the two people who are with me to come with me. So whatever happens, I have people with me. But I just felt that God was saying, actually, Naomi, in a way, she couldn't really see hope for herself, but she still had hope for her daughter-in-laws. She so he felt that there was something more for them than just coming back to Israel and living on the goodness of the people, a few cranes and a few crepes here and there. So he felt that there was a bigger plan for her daughter-in-law, so that's why he was encouraging them to return, even though it meant that she would be completely alone. So she gave up the one thing she still had, was her daughter-in-law. She was willing to give that up. But actually, through the willingness to give that up, she gained everything because Ruth chose to come with her rather than return to her own home. And I was really challenged by that because if you think of this widow, she's journeying from a foreign land back to her homeland. She doesn't really know where she's heading to. She can't really do anything about the circumstances. And the only thing she can do something about is her attitude. And her heart was to see the bigger picture for her daughter-in-laws. And I think for us, that's the challenge as well. Whatever the mountain we are facing, whatever that is, we can't always do anything about the circumstances, whether, it's, whether we are in the position we are in through the choices we've made or whether it's circumstances that are beyond our control. We can't always change those, but we can change our attitudes, so we can change our hearts. And actually, it's very tempting to think, if our circumstances changed, then it would be so much easier to do this. If only I had this. If only this happened, then I would. Whereas actually, the circumstances don't make one bit of difference. It's your heart that makes a difference. So if you aren't generous when you have little, you aren't going to be generous when you have much. If you aren't going to be full of kindness, when you're in a difficult place, you aren't going to be full of kindness when you're in a kind of lovely, easy place. 
as human beings, we don't, we don't like the hard place. Because the only thing that's left is us and God. And if you haven't heard Rebecca's talk, Ladies' Breakfast, I would really recommend that you listen to that. And I remember it was when you spoke years ago, Rebecca, you said God is more interested in our ha holiness than our happiness. And that's so true. But we are so much interested in the happiness than the holiness. And I was thinking with, um, I don't know why it popped in my mind, hermits. You can't always think, oh, it must be so easy for them. They can just go on the mountain and spend time with God and just be on their own and it's wonderful. But actually, if you think about it, it's just them and God. There's no distractions, there's no busyness, there's nothing. It's just them and God. And after a while, they would kind of, they would have nothing left to say, so they would have to start listening to God. And it probably wouldn't be all that cheerful that God wants to say to them. So actually, being a hermit is probably the hardest place to be because there's nothing between you and God. Whereas we are very good at being busy and we don't have time to stop. Or we say we don't have time to stop. But actually, very rarely we are willing to stop and listen to what God is going to say about our hearts. And when you're going through the hard time, it is very challenging to keep your heart right, to see the glimmer of hope. I had, after I finished my PhD, or after I submitted, and I had 19 months of applying for jobs before I got one. And that was hard, because I went interview after interview. The feedback I got was, you were great, but there was somebody else who had more suited experience. Ooh. And knowing universities, they written the job description for a particular person. <laughs> so there was no way I was going to fit the description because they already had the person in mind. But when you're going through that, it's very difficult to actually believe that I will ever get a job. Because time after time, you do your best, but your best is not good enough. And there's nothing you can do. I think that was the most frustrating thing. There was nothing I could do because they said, there was a, it, it, it was just there was somebody whose research project or PhD had been on the particular project that I wanted to work on. So it wasn't like I, was, I could even kind of magically come up with this experience because being in academia, you kind of start to narrow down in such a particular areas that unless you're directly in that area, it, you'd be lucky to get a job. Not that I'm <coughs> discouraging anybody who wants to become an academic. <laughs> it's a wonderful career path. <laughs> Three-year probation, woohoo! But the amazing thing is, through kind of, in the end, it got to a point where I ended up applying for nine-month part-time projects, and thinking, if I can't get that, what's there for me to do? And I ended up getting it, and it's turned to full-time permanent post which is amazing, because there aren't too many of those going around nowadays. And I think, kind of, I remember we had the conversation, because David was pretty much saying, what's the point of applying? It's only nine months. And it was down in Stockton as well. 
So there was everything was against for applying for it. But I did, and I was blessed. And sometimes we just have to keep going, and it doesn't kind of, on the face of it, it looked nothing that I wanted. It was nine months, it was part-time, and it was nearly an hour's drive away from home. But now I have a full-time permanent job that will be moving to Newcastle in the next two years. How amazing is that? And that's the funny thing, I think got a sense of humour, because I always thought I'd be down there for five years, and then I would look for a new job, either in Northumbria or Newcastle. But now, with the politics of universities, my department is moving to Newcastle University without me having to apply for a job. How good is that? But going back, when I was the 19 months, it was soul-destroying. You apply for job after job after job, trying to stay hopeful that this is the one. And then time and time again, you go to the interview, being in university, you usually have to give a half an hour presentation on something completely pointless. <laughs> that is relevant to the project that you would probably be working on, so it wouldn't be pointless, but it's not just the case of putting your suit on and going to an interview. You usually have to spend at least half a day preparing a presentation on a topic that you knew nothing about, so it wasn't an easy thing to just turn up on an interview. And then you come home, you do your best, and then you wait for the phone call. And it's really difficult to stay hopeful in the place where you time and time again they've said, you were fantastic, but... I got to a point where I would have rather heard that I was rubbish, <laughs> because at least there was something I could do about it. But I was stuck in a place of waiting where I just had to keep my heart right. There was nothing I could do. And that's, that's hard. And I love in Proverbs 4.23, it's one of my favorite scriptures, is above all, protect your heart because that's the wellspring of life. So whatever we do, that's the most important thing for us to look after, is our heart. Because that's where life flows from. But again, that's the hardest thing to do as well. Because it's just between me and God. David can't do it for me. Sometimes it would be nice if somebody else could do it for you. But in the end of the day, when we stand in front of the throne, he's not going to be asking about what David did. He's going to be asking me, what did I do? Did I look after the widows and the orphans? Did I keep my heart right? Did I choose in a hard time when I had no hope for myself? Did I still choose to bless others like Naomi chose to release her daughter-in-laws? And actually there was a... Facebook is usually full of rubbish. Um, but occasionally there's a good thing here and there. Lorena posted this week a list of 10 things you can do when you have no money, which is almost kind of... It kind of fitted. It, it was something I'd been mulling over the attitudes and kind of how your heart is, and it just fitted in quite nicely. So I copied the list. So, 10 things when you have no money that you can do. Because we usually, lack of money is one of the things that we say, if only I had more money, I could do this. So, if you have no money, you can still be on time, you can still have good work ethic, 
You can make an effort. Your body language can be positive. You can be energetic. You can have a good attitude. You can have passion. You can be teachable. You can go the extra mile. And you can be prepared. None of those things cost you a penny. But they do cost you self-discipline. And for Naomi, something that had been for a while had become a permanent solution. And I think we have the tendency to do the same. Um, that something was just for a short while actually becomes a permanent feature. And we've got so many, when we first got married when we were students, we knew everything, we were so mature. <laughs> Age 20, as you do. But we didn't have much money, so we went to second-hand shops, we went to Ikea, and we bought pieces of furniture that probably weren't what we wanted, but they would do for the time being. And then when we have more money, we get something nicer. And here we are, after 16 years of marriage, and quite a few of those pieces of furniture are still around because it's very easy for things to become a habit. You just think it's just one off. I'll just use the overdraft once, and before you know, you're living in debt. I'll just be late once for work, and before you know, every meeting you go to, you're late for. I have to say, that's the one Finnish feature I haven't inherited. Finns are usually quite punctual, and I think that got missed out for my DNA. <laughs> so it's been something I've been learning, and it, interestingly, there's another Finnish girl at work, and she's got it. So she's there five minutes before meeting starts, with her papers already, and everybody else is typical Brits, kind of turning up exactly on a dot, if you're lucky. <laughs> and she gets so frustrated. And I can, I can share in her frustration, because I was brought up in Finland where everybody is punctual, and things just happen on time. But, but it's something I've been learning, and kind of because it's honouring to others. If you make a commitment, it's honouring the others to be on time. And it's, it's funny, now with mobile phones, it's actually so easy. Because so many times you hear a conversation, you're walking around supermarkets, and you, you can hear somebody saying, oh, I'm in the car, I'm on my way. And you know full well, no, they're in the supermarket. <laughs> but it's, you can say, oh, I'm on my way, because with mobile phones. And it's, technically, it's not a lie, because you will be in your car in a couple of minutes' times after you paid. But it's just a little slip of the tongue that happens very easily. But perseverance is not something that society values. But then if you think of Paul, time after time in the letters, he was encouraging us to run a good race. And I'll read this from 2 Corinthians, just to cheer you all up. 2 Corinthians 6. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. There's something a bit cheerful there. That would be the thing that when we come to church on Sunday morning, that would be the thing that we talk about. We don't talk about the sleepless nights, the beatings, the imprisonments, the hard things that we go through. 
or if they do, then it's always followed by, but God will overcome, which is true. But more often than not, we focus not on what creates us. And it, it's funny, because so one of the things I was muttering to David, kind of, why don't I kind of ever get the passage there? It's all about the Holy Spirit and kind of being refreshed and flowing, and it would be lovely. But actually, you can't have that without the other. If you aren't willing to put in the hard work and dig the ground and prepare for it, the refreshing is pointless because it will just fall off you. Whereas when you work on your heart, it will receive it. And it will, you're digging the deep wells that will go within your foundations of who you are. And then God can bless you even more. So it's not that God doesn't want to love you and God doesn't want to bless you, but then there's another greater level of understanding of who he is. If we are willing to spend time, just him and me, going through, Rebecca talked about God doing autopsy on your life, and that's what it is. Giving him all the areas that we want to hide and we don't show each other. Give them to him and get him to work on it. So I'll go back to the good stuff. In purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. How amazing is that? I've gone kind of straight away from Naomi. Apologies. But to me, the story of Naomi is, is this one of perseverance. She started from having lost everything, and in the end, she gained everything. And she went through, kind of even once they got to Israel, she must have been kind of, she didn't really know what to do, so it was actually Ruth who said, shall I go and pick up some cranes? And Naomi was kind of, okay, go on, because we need to eat. It, it was kind of more out of desperation. Ruth went and collected the cranes. And then she came back the first day. She had 22 liters worth of flour. And if you think of the crane, then you grind it up to flour, it goes smaller. So she must have collected a fair, fair big sack of crane. And you can see Naomi's brain starts to work. How did this happen? You shouldn't have collected this much. Which field did you go to? And as by coincidence, Ruth had gone to the field of Boaz, who was the kinsman redeemer, one of the only people who could turn around the situation for the Naomi and Ruth. And in that, Naomi saw a glimmer of hope and decided to act. 
So then on the following day, she encourages her daughter-in-law to go back. And Liz will tell you the wonderful story of what happens. But through the little, little ray of sunshine, or the little glimmer of hope, Naomi chose to act. And through that, they received everything. So Ruth ends up getting married to Boaz. And Boaz comes and they had a whole kind of system of how if brother dies without a son and blah, 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 and then the family member has to redeem and marry and it's complicated. But it's all in the Bible if you want to find out how it works. <laughs> but basically, the only person, or there was one closer than Boaz who could have taken over, but when he found out that he'd have to have this so I think the kind of pretty much the women went with the land. So if he wanted to buy this piece of land, he would have to have the lady as well, and he didn't want the lady. So Boaz got the lot. But the, through through the faithfulness, I think that these two ladies showed to each other as well. God just turned everything around, and it's amazing that from having nothing. Naomi gained everything, but it wasn't an easy ride. But in that, she chose to keep her heart right. And when she saw the tiny glimmer of hope, she followed it. And I think sometimes we can, we want to hear the big booming voice, don't we? Whereas actually, sometimes it's just this tiny, tiny whisper, but we know that it's from God. So we do, when we are facing our mountain, we keep our heart right. There will come a point where we'll have to make a decision, one way or the other. And for Naomi, she made the decision to encourage her daughter-in-law to go. And it's just wonderful because I think any, any situation we face, we have the opportunity to stand tall or let the opportunity or the situation to crush us down. And I, had, I was digging away in the garden yesterday, and I said, the image that popped in my mind was when you see trees growing on a very weather-beaten kind of cliff tops, and you see some of them that grow tall, or relatively tall, but they've leaned into the wind, and that's how they grow upright. Or you see the others, they are completely fallen over because they've let the wind blow over them. And to me, that was just a wonderful illustration of when we are going through hardship. Do we choose to lean into the wind or do we let it bowl over us? And the wonderful thing is that God is good. That whatever we're going through, He's good. His love endures forever. And for Naomi, from having lost everything, she gained everything. I'll read the last couple of verses in Ruth. From 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. 
the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Opert. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. How amazing is that? Naomi went away full and came back empty, but God turned the situation around as he was full again. And not only was she full, she became one of the few women who is mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, on David's genealogy. And I think, I was kind of hoping this would be a pep talk, but I can't really do the American cheery style pep talk. Being a Finn, it has to be a somber pep talk. (laughs) But I think the one thing I'd like you to just remember is just to keep going. Run a good race. Keep your heart right. And it will be all good in the end, whether it's up there or down here, because his heart is the blessers. He can turn situations around from hopelessness to hope. And his understanding is so much bigger than ours. In our mind, we think this would be a good solution, whereas God has such different plans for us. And they're so much better and so much bigger than we understand. So could I just get you all the close your eyes and I would just like to read you a verse. from Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.